Welcome everybody to Crystal Kyle and Friends. If I sound like I'm sick, that's because I still mm-hmm. am. So I will be a gentleman and not get Ryan Grimsick. The reason why you and I are, well, first of all, for husband and wife. Yeah. So, but, but also. I'm was, the one who gave you this to start with. Right, so hopefully yeah. I'm immune from whatever plague that you have. It stops with me, though. It uh, stops with me. Everyone so. in the house has gotten this thing except for our son, Lil. Yeah. So we're, we're hoping that he hangs in there. I told the crew backstage, stay away. Also, to their credit, they're wearing masks. Yeah. I was like, I refuse <laughs> to get any of y'all sick. Uh, It'd be impossible to do this without getting Ryan sick. So that's why I'm going to step out. But don't go anywhere because let me tell you, it's going to be a fascinating conversation. I was just trying to catch up on this last night. Yeah. But what's happening in Pakistan is insane. Everybody needs to know about what's happening in Pakistan. It's a giant scandal and crisis. Basically, there's a whole thing going on with election rigging. Yeah. Who's the U.S.'s person? Who isn't the U.S.'s person? What's going on with the power struggle with the guy who used to be in power and is now in prison, but his party was going to win and the military got involved and it was all sorts of craziness. Well, and Ryan US, is an expert on all this. No, he's not only an expert. Ryan um, and one of his colleagues at The Intercept broke one of the key stories that turned Pakistan politics upside down about U.S. involvement in pushing these charges against Imran Khan. The U.S. did not like these, the former prime minister of Pakistan and really the most popular politician in the entire country. And they did not like the neutral stance that he was taking with regard to the Ukraine war. So this has massive implications, not just for what's happening in Pakistan, and this is very much a live and ongoing story, but also for our own country and how our State Department is handling what is one of the most blatant examples of election rigging that you could possibly imagine. So we're going to get Ryan to go through it from the beginning who are the characters involved? What happened? What do we know? What's likely to, to happen next? Because, you know, it's it is an incredibly important story. See, what I don't understand, and you can get into this with Ryan, is that like, so there, there's a number of leaders around the world who are our allies who have the same position as him, like Lula, for example, has the same position on Ukraine. He wants to be neutral. He wants to be a mediator. He wants to have negotiation and compromise. So why is it that Lula's not getting cooed, but he got cooed for the a position that they both have. It seems to me like there's definitely a deeper story there mm. that, you know, what I said to you before the cameras were on is I feel like it's sort of like a like a Saddam situation. Not to say that Imran Khan is like Saddam because Saddam actually was a horrible person, et cetera. I don't know anything about Imran Khan, but it's like he was useful to us when he was useful to us. And then when he stopped being useful to us, we're like, your ass is gone. You know what I'm saying? So I feel like it might be deeper than that, but Ryan will break that all down for yeah, everybody. Absolutely. So. Maybe an example of just like, you know, the opportunity was there. They had these trumped up like corruption charges that they could go with. And the U.S. was like, why don't you go ahead and do that? Yeah, we're, well, We support it. I, for one, am shocked that the U.S. is involving itself in other countries. Right. Yes, of course. I and cannot the believe The functioning of democracy. <laughs> All right. So there's uh, still some stuff, though, I want to get to before we get to the Ryan interview. So um, you sent me this the other day, Crystal. Yeah. Jenk um, is still running for president. And, you know, he's he knows that the chances are non-existent of him winning. He's very clear and open about that fact. So why is he staying in? Well, now it appears like he's leaning into this idea of... I'm going to just be the ceasefire guy because it's one of the most important things, if not the most important thing happening in the world right now. So I'm turning my campaign into a one issue campaign and I'm going to hammer away on that. And every vote that comes to me is a vote in favor of a ceasefire. And it's a vote to say, stop sending money to Israel as they commit a genocide. So he released an ad and I want to show everybody and then we'll react to it. Take a look. We get all the sandwich stuff for the kids lunch. They don't like turkey anymore. Yeah, I know. What about the bananas? Yeah, I got them too. But honey. What? 
You're gonna have to put those eggs back. They don't like eggs anymore? No, they like eggs. But we have to set that $7 aside. For killing Palestinians? What? I mean, don't we give Israel $4 billion a year anyways? Yeah, and now we're giving them another $14 billion. Do you know how much that is per American taxpayer? No. It's like $85 per person. <laughs> Apparently it's costing us a lot of money to drop bombs on Gaza. It's <sighs> terrible. Don't they get universal health care, too? Yeah, they do. We're paying for that, too, probably. Might as well put the bananas back. Why the f*** do we have to pay for all of this? Don't cuss at me. I'm Jank Uger, and I approve this message. Let's save lives together at jankforamerica.com. I mean, I like it. I like it. It's the only, you know, this is... This is one of those things everybody's feeling... Yeah. But nobody's saying with any position of power, even people who've been relatively solid on this issue recently, like Bernie, he doesn't want to send any more money to Israel. But this is way further than he would ever go. Yeah. Right. I mean, when she says like, oh, we need that money for killing Palestinians. It's like shock to the system. Shit. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And it's like, that's actually true. It's also the type of messaging on this issue that I think really breaks through for normies who may not be seeing all of the horrors that are being done to Palestinians in their name, but just have this instinct of like, Hey, we've got a lot of problems here. This is actually what we heard from all the RFK Jr. supporters Mm. who, of course, RFK Jr. has a horrific position on Israel, but put that to the side when they're talking about, you know, his position on Ukraine and in general, what they thought with regard to Israel, which they weren't totally aware of what his position on Israel was. That was what all of them said, basically, like we've got we feel bad for these countries. You know, it's not that we don't want to be good allies around the world, but we've got major issues here at home. People don't have health care. People don't have enough to eat. Inflation's killing me at the grocery store, et cetera. And so there's got to be some kind of a limit. So this is the kind of messaging that I think would appeal not only to lefties, progressives, Democrats in general, but independents and quite a few Republicans as well. This is like, I think, very core normie messaging. Well, to your point, Biden uh, did a speech the other day where he was bragging about this historic, and Chuck Schumer said this too, historic $95 billion bill that we just passed in the Senate and the terrible Republicans are blocking it in the House of Representatives. And for those you don't know, 60 billion of that 95 billion goes to Ukraine, 14 billion goes to Israel, and the rest goes to the Indo-Pacific or Taiwan. And they're talking about this, like, it's must pass. And that's why we have to do this. And obviously the reaction looking at that from people across the political spectrum is going to be, this is your must fucking pass. Right. This is your must pass. $95 billion for other countries. Now, by the way, you know, I think it's a nuanced conversation about the specifics and sending money to Ukraine versus sending money to Israel, who's literally in the midst of committing a genocide. But that's not the point. The point is, For example, we have 500,000 or more homeless Americans right now, and nobody ever in Washington, D.C. is like, we need a must-pass bill to get a roof over the heads of our 500,000 fellow brothers and sisters who are struggling at the moment. Or, you know, like the government of of the governor of Connecticut just did, the Democrat. He's like, we're just going to wipe out all the medical debt for everybody who lives in Connecticut, which is fucking mega-based. But you never hear from from Biden or from any of the politicians in D.C. We desperate. This is a must pass bill to wipe out all the medical debt, which 40 percent of Americans are experiencing at the moment. And we made a deal for pennies on the dollar to wipe it out. This is a must pass. You never hear that. Right. And when people look at that, they're like, I understand there's going to be a little bit of a disconnect between myself and corrupt, scummy politicians. But this big of a disconnect is unacceptable. None of our problems are ever like must pass. But when it's fucking 95 billion dollars for other countries it's a must pass 
Mitt Romney literally said that the Ukraine-Israel bill was the most important vote ever. Go fuck yourself. Ever. Go fuck yourself. That's $14 billion going to genocide. Exactly. And I mean, and to show you just how incredible the brainworms around this are, you could have someone like Senator Van Hollen who gets up on the floor oh, yeah. and is like, I talked to Cindy McCain at the World Food Program. Kids are literally starving to death. That is a war crime. The people who are doing this to these kids are war criminals. But I'm going to go ahead and vote for the package anyway to send more money to the war criminals that are starving kids because, you know, I've been so convinced that the the rest of what's in this package is like democracy on the line, et cetera, et cetera. It's it is. So anyway, I think Jenk is really hitting the nail on the head with this messaging. I'm glad he's out there pushing it. They said it's like going viral on TikTok, which I could ab- absolutely see um, what he says in terms of staying in the race at this point, you know, in spite of the, you know, to call them long odds, I think is a bit of an understatement. But basically, like, you know, he thinks it's still possible that Biden pulls out of the race, is pressure to pull out of the race. If he can get to 15 percent in some state, he'll have some delegates going into the convention. That gives you some negotiating room. You know, do I think that that's going to work out? Or even even if all of those things happen, Biden drops out and Jenks able to get to 15 percent, he goes in the convention with, you know, some level of delegates. Do I think that's going to work out for him or even anyone else who is remotely progressive? No, I don't think so. But that I just want to put out there. That's what that's what he's thinking about and staying in the race. It's not going to work, but. I'm just happy there's some movement and noise around something that is true. Agreed. You know what I'm saying? I agree. I don't yeah. care what form or fashion it comes in at this point, whether it be like, hey, we're going to do a write-in campaign where you write ceasefire, or you're going to write in Jank Uger, or you're going to vote for Jank Uger. I, I don't care the, the, the way in which it comes about, yeah. but I need to see some movement around that which is obvious to all of us. And this is that. Right. So yeah. if for no other reason you look at that and you go, thank God. Thank so, yeah, God. I wish this someone, goes mega viral. Let this go mega viral. This video. At least someone is out there taking like a moral stand on behalf of something that is obviously like true, which is that it is out beyond outrageous that the U.S. is rushing to ship weapons to a current genocide perpetrator. That is not even our, I mean, the ICJ at this point has said it's plausible they're doing a genocide. And we're like, that's okay. Let's just still give them $14 billion and let's make sure that we circumvent our own State Department and congressional procedures to rush them those weapons as soon as possible. And we'll ask them nicely to like, let this shipment of flour through that they won't even listen to us on, but that's all fine and good. Other than Jenk, there's a guy by the name of John Stewart who also mm-hmm. was based on the issue of Israel. Run for president. I, I, I said that in my segment, talking about him coming back. I was like, I hope, I know he's probably not thinking this, but I hope that this is like a run up to 2028. He runs for president because yeah. I am at the point now where I think the only way a lefty wins, it's, it either has to be a senator who can't be denied because they're a senator, so the media has to give you attention, or an A-list celebrity. Maybe you can get away with a B-list celebrity running because if you're a congressman or if you're an outsider, they're just like... Pfft. We're just going to act like you don't exist. And so yeah. you can never get any traction. So I would love that too. But, you know, he did his uh, his first episode back, and um, I thought it was a phenomenal episode. He, he went after both Biden and Trump. Uh, contrary to what many people are saying, what many idiots are saying, it was not a total both sides, false equivalence, they're equal. It wasn't that at all. And anybody who honestly views it and listens to the words that he says will come to that conclusion. Correct. But that didn't stop. The resistance liberals and the mainstream media freaks from acting like he did do a total enlightened centrist both sides shtick, 
right? And so they went after John Stewart relentlessly. And um, I mean, just to give a couple, of, The View did it. Yeah. I know you talked about The View doing <laughs> Mary it. Mary Trump one is my favorite. Mary Trump. T- <laughs> tell everybody what she said, because this shows you how deranged the mindset I mean, is. It's not even like they just were like, oh, I disagree with the way he approached this. No, she said he was a disaster for democracy and blamed him for the election of Donald Trump in 2016 because of the rally to restore sanity that he did in 2010. That was her logic, was that he, in in no small part, I think was her language, was responsible for the election of Donald Trump in 2016. And now he's back to do it again. And he's a quote unquote disaster for democracy because he said things that are like the most obviously true and accepted the 86% of Americans think this man is too old to be president again. And you're just supposed to like completely disconnect from reality and pretend like that's not happening. And he took bigger shots at Trump. I don't know why people are not acknowledging this. He had more venom for Trump. They're acting like he didn't just because any little criticism of Joe Biden now blue MAGA acts like MAGA where they're like, you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to say that. And by the way, he retired from The Daily Show in 2015. How the fuck could he be responsible for Trump when he wasn't there to cover the Trump era? Now, I have problems with the rally to restore sanity. I think he was doing too much of the enlightened centrist thing back then. Yeah. But he did, was not in any way, shape, or form responsible for getting Trump elected. This is Six years later, the rally to restore sanity was in 2010. It, I mean, it's just insane. In, complete insanity. Just so, absolute derangement. It's been incredible to watch. So this stuff hit a fever pitch. Keith Olbermann came after him. Oh, All yeah. these resistance accounts were basically like, he looks as old as Biden, even though he's 20 years younger. How about that, John? Uh, okay, whatever. Uh, <laughs> so um, this uh, made it to CNN. And what they talked about is actually kind of interesting how they covered it. Take a look at this. Our politics lead, he's back. John Stewart made his return to The Daily Show on Comedy Central last night as the calendar inches closer and closer to what seems like an inevitable rematch between two candidates with firm grips on their party's nominations. And as President Biden's and former President Trump's influence on lawmakers on Capitol Hill has snarled anything from getting done, anything done there back with me is our political panel. So, Paul, as as you know, Stewart made his triumphant return to late night satire. Uh, take take a listen. Why am I back? Uh, you may be asking yourselves. It's a very reasonable question. Uh, I have committed a lot of crimes. <laughs> From what I understand, talk show hosts are granted immunity, so it doesn't. <laughs> so he he made fun of wherever the targets were, including President Biden's mm-hmm. age and memory. Uh, and there were a lot of angry progressives on social media. Not that I generally listen to angry people on social media, but but they thought that they accused him of both signerism, although that's not what he did, et cetera, et cetera. What, what do you I, make of I it? I didn't see it, but he's known to be a both sides guy. He is. He skewers both sides. That's his job. That's how he uh, views things. Um, I, I do think that that was probably appropriate when the choice was like Obama or Romney. Okay, but for progressives, by the way, for a lot of non-progressives, a lot of conservatives, this is a choice between a, a, a sanity and a guy who's an existential threat to our country. Uh, but I, I think that was reflected. And that's not. In, that's not like. The I time think that both. was reflected in his comedy, though. I don't think he equated the choices, but he just also yeah. acknowledged some of the jokes to be made at President Biden. Which I actually think is healthy. We cannot be afraid of making fun of ourselves. And actually, you know, you saw President Biden make fun of his age over the weekend. It was funny. It was good. Like, come on. We already know they're both old. And I agree when it comes down to the actual issues. He's, he's, there's not the both sides of I, I saw some of the flipping out by progressives online. And I was like, 
come on, guys. You're going to have to learn to take a joke if we're going to survive between now and November. So Paul Begales starts to do the thing. Yeah. Right? He starts to do the thing. Yeah. And then Tapper, and to my shock, Karen Finney, yeah, who's I like a DNC op, she's like, come no, on. No, that's that. No, 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 no. And you made a point when we were watching it that. It wasn't progressive saying this. I know. It was the biggest resistance liberals on the planet. Yeah. this It always irritates me the way they throw around the terms like progressive or the left, you know? Right, yeah. And it's just like such a catch-all when really these are just DNC flack partisan shill liberals, which is a very different category of people. But um, I am surprised to see CNN having a remotely good take. It's also funny that Paul Begala got so immediately like cowed by the host, Alan, of expressing what he had clearly intended to come in to express of this like, you know, I don't know if he was going to say threat to democracy or whatever, but he clearly had planned to chide John Stewart and kind of made a U-turn once Jake Tapper signaled he was not going in that direction. Yeah. The, the reason this was nice to see is because what I've seen recently mm-hmm. is a segment of Democrats who are, they've lost their normiedom. You know what I mean? They've lost yeah. their, for a long time, I would have argued that on the Democratic side, the, the run of the mill standard Democratic voters, there was more of a streak of normiedom in them versus the MAGA people. Yeah. That the MAGA people have for for quite a while now, for years now, I mean, I mean, just look at the polling that, you know, there's this whole cultish thing around Trump where they literally say, I would take his word over my mom, my dad, my daughter, my son, my best friend, a religious figure, a mentor. And you look at that and you go, okay, cultish, right? On the Democratic side, I always thought, no, they're a little better. There's still more of a sense of normiedom. But it got to the point with the reaction of Jon Stewart where I was looking at it and I'm like, no, this is just the mirror image of MAGA. But I think you have to separate like the con- online weirdo partisan hacks and other like media commentators that are uh, outraged. Mary Trump saying is a disaster for democracy and whatever. And the actual voters, because the actual voters also majority of Democrats are like, he's too old. So yeah, I do so, think that there is more of a norminum there than, you know, a significant chunk of the Republican base believes this Taylor Swift, NATO, Soros, Pfizer, PSYOP nonsense. So I do think that there's a difference between the base of the voters. But in terms of this cult-like behavior, I mean, that's what kept hitting me, watching the views commentary on this, which, first of all, Joy Behar was still stuck on the like, he has a stammer. He's he just has a stutter. See, that's, that's no different than Sean Hannity to judge. me. It's like, what? That, How are we still pretending this is the case? But I think the actual market for that complete denial of reality is really quite small in the grand scheme. Of so le- allow me to make the distinction because you're right. Yeah. What I'm referring to when I say MAGA and blue MAGA yeah. is hyper online political junkies. Mm-hmm. So and and I. I think that the view at this point is nothing but the mirror image of Sean Hannity show mm-hmm. where you get this funhouse mirror view of the world of like Trump does no wrong. The Republicans do no wrong. The Democrats are everything evil. Now you have this, you know, this mirror world view from the view where it it's not even like Democrats are good and Republicans are bad. It has now graduated to Joe Biden can do no wrong right. ever. Even when he's like shitting himself on stage, they're like, (laughs) actually, he wasn't doing that. It was AI generated and you're lying about it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And even the Republican, what's her name? Alyssa Farah. Is that her name? Yes. Even she, when in her commentary 
on this, she was like, make no mistake about it. Joe Biden is like the best president we've ever had. And he's accomplished more for the American people than you could possibly imagine before acknowledging like, eh, maybe like, yeah, his age is a little bit of an issue. But even the like opposition voice has to live in the realm of Joe Biden is literally the best president we've ever had in, you know, generations and generations that's the level of like propaganda, like North Korea level propaganda that's going on at that program at this point. And that's the same thing that happens on Fox News when Hannity brings on a token liberal. It's like, Harold I, got, Ford Jr. I got a lot of respect for Trump and he did a lot of things I like. Yes. But, you know, in this little tiny way, I deviate like that. That's the problem yeah. here. Yes. And it's just I don't it's not possible for this sort of stuff to work in a situation where, like you pointed out, 86% of the country says, I don't think he can do a second term. Yeah. It's just not going to work. I also think the reaction to Jon Stewart, I mean, Jon Stewart was the same. Like, yes, he's aged a bit since in the nine years since he's been gone or whatever. But in terms of his timing, in terms of his comedic approach, in terms of, you know, taking on like skewering whoever and being funny, he sounded exactly the same. And yet this freak out was completely different from the way that people used to react to Jon Stewart. And I do think you see in that it's not that Jon Stewart has changed. It's that Trump has made politics so that it's all just about negative partisanship. And there's all this like existential terror that leads people to um, disconnect from reality and deny reality to try to avoid giving the other side a quote unquote talking point or giving any credence whatsoever to even the legitimate points that an oppositional person Person might make. I would say Stewart was either the same, as you pointed out, or maybe even a little sharper and better and further to the left, if anything, because there was one point in it where he stops to be like, what I've learned about politics is, you know, the work never stops. And even if you get the elected, the person who you wanted to get elected, who you viewed as a lesser evil or whatever, you still got to get your ass up and it's a fucking lunch pail job and, yeah. it, and it's never ending. And so I think that even though what he said was tarnished as like a both sidesist, enlightened centrist type thing, I actually think it was quite the opposite. I think it was like a sharper left-wing message that had critiques of Trump and Biden, but had even more venom for Trump. Yeah. At one point, he makes the exact distinction people like this wanted to hear, which is like, now look, Biden's not Trump. He doesn't have 91 criminal charges. He doesn't have four indictments. He didn't grab anybody by the pussy, et cetera, et cetera. Right. He did that whole thing they wanted him to do, and they just ignored it. They just yeah. Why? I think because it's a stinging rebuke in the sense that it was a very incisive, objective like real left-wing critique. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, and they just don't want to hear the Biden stuff at all. But no, nothing, I agree with you. nothing. And he also made a point of like bringing up Israel and Gaza, even though it could have been left out of the Biden age stuff, which I think is another point in your favor. And, um, you know, I listened to a lot of what he did on his Apple show. Um, and it was ev more evident there even than in this Daily Show return that his politics, I think, have become a little more sharper, more left-wing, especially his commentary about economics. The way he would go after some of these officials who had the misfortune to agree to interviews with him, I mean, it really was quite sharp. And then the reason why that ended up, he ended up leaving, was because they wanted to censor some of his views and some of the things that he wanted to do. Um, and so he said, like, basically, screw you. No, I'm not doing that. And that's why he's back. So Based, based yeah, on Stewart. Um, one small good thing that we can look forward to. All right. So let's uh, wrap up the intro here before we get into the conversation with you and Ryan with uh, what happened the other day. So I'm sure all of you have heard of this by now. But um, during the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl parade, there was a shooting. 
there was a shooting. And um, I want to go ahead and give you guys what we know as of this point. As of the recording of this video, here's what we know. Uh, shots were fired at the end of the Chiefs' victory parade and rally in downtown Kansas City, Missouri yesterday. The, by the time you watch this, it's not yesterday, but you get the point. One person was killed, at least as of now, mm-hmm. and 21 others were shot, including children, oh. officials said. So... I, I mean, my guess is that number's probably going to go up of people who were killed. We see this with many other mass shootings at the beginning. You have a lower casualty number, but then as time goes on, some of the people who are in the hospital succumb to their wounds. Uh, They say three people are in custody. Officials say they do not believe the motive was terrorism, but that's basically all that they're saying at the moment. So what is the motive? I don't know, right? And I don't think anybody knows, at least as of the recording of this segment, by the time this releases, maybe you guys have more information. But we do have a video that just came out um, that I want to share with you guys. Take a look at this. I mean, obviously, that's a, a gut-wrenching video, but when I look at this, my my main thought is nothing's going to change. Mm-hmm. Nothing's going to change. I mean, when we had, what was it, the Uvalde shooting? There's so many, it's hard yeah. to even keep track of which one is the one that felt like it was the straw that broke the camel's back. But there's been so many, and there's been so many in schools. Parkland, there, There's Sandy been so Huck. many in elementary schools and middle schools, never mind hosp- uh, high schools or colleges. And like, if we've been through ones where a dozen kids died or over 20 kids died in that scenario, and we didn't really do much in response to it. I mean, to be fair, there was that bipartisan piece of legislation that Biden did get through, but it was very mild tweaks around the edges. You know, it Mm -hmm. it wasn't even like like a red flag law for the whole country. It was like a funding for red flag laws if you want it. Yeah, it was like an encouragement towards red flag laws. Mixed with, I think, mm-hmm. raising the age to maybe 21 to buy certain weapons. Like It was very mild. Better than nothing, but very mild. And when you look at that, and now you see the Super Bowl parade getting shot up. This is yeah. like the most American thing you can think of. This is as American as mother or apple pie. And if this is going to get shot up, and nobody's even having the conversation anymore, it just makes me feel like it's, it's an affirmation that we just don't solve problems anymore. Yeah. We, we just look, if something happens, we just sort of look at it as a natural phenomenon and it's like, it is what it is. People have just given up on, um, understandably so, on politics being able to solve problems like this. The politicians have given up on people having a- any expectation that they're actually going to solve problems and better the lives of the citizens. And so something like this goes by and it's like barely commented or commented upon or even noticed because we've just become so inured to this level of violence being endemic to our society all the time. And that's how you end up with, you know, when you give up on politicians actually being able to solve problems, then you end up with a politics that is just about like vibes and personality and cultural signaling versus any sort of substantive issue positions. And, you know, the Trump era has been huge on that because everything's just become about really like the personality of Donald Trump and how you feel about Donald Trump and who 
which group are you owning in that moment? Like, are you owning the libs? Are you owning the conservatives? I mean, it kind of goes back to the whole like Biden age conversation and John Stewart conversation about just this like cultish reaction to personalities, vibes and insults over actual policy and substance. I think that's exactly right. Um, and for people who might hear our conversation and go, well, what even can be done about it? I mean, there's a few things I would say. First of all, it's not like it's impossible to solve this. Other countries have solved it. Yeah. We just don't. I mean, the people actually do want to do something about it, but the politicians never in a million years they want to do anything about yeah. it. And the entire Republican side is bought by the NRA. And we can go on and on about that. But Japan has virtually no mass shootings and they also have virtually no guns. Now, is that what I'm advocating for? No, because I'm an American just as much as anybody else. And I do believe at least to some extent in the Second Amendment, but I'll get into that more in a second. But, you know, even a country like Australia, they had a mass shooting and I think it was 1996. They did a big crackdown. Oh, would you look at that? They almost never have mass shootings anymore. Mm -hmm. So the idea, oh, there's nothing we can do. Of course there's stuff we could do. Just the politicians don't want to do it and they won't lift a finger for it. So now, what would I do in a situation like this? Or what are some ideas that uh, we could do to at least drastically reduce the number of not just mass shootings, but also gun deaths in general, yeah. whether they come in the form of a mass shooting or not? Yeah. It's the obvious ideas. Universal background checks, ban on high capacity magazines, a universal red flag law, which I think is the most common sense thing you could ever do. If somebody's having a schizophrenic breakdown and they're saying, I'm going to do a mass shooting, you of course should be legally able to take that person's gun. The idea that it's too much of an imposition or it, it swats aside due process, if you take away a gun from somebody who's saying, I cannot wait to do a mass shooting today, that's psycho if you believe that. Um, ban on assault weapons. You could have a testing process, um, to uh, a stringent testing process to determine who can have guns and who can have guns. And if you fail the test, sorry, you're asked out. You're just not in a place where, you know, you can have a gun or rules about how many guns you have. For example, you could have a voluntary gun buyback program where you get rid of a lot of the excess guns that are in circulation that people don't even want anymore, which Lord only knows could be sold on the black market. Somebody uses it for a shooting, etc. There's a million things we could do right now. Last I saw this is as of a few years back, but it's something like 32,000 gun deaths a year that we have in this country. When you include all the different kinds, whether it be suicide shootings or mass shootings, all of it put together is 32,000 gun deaths. The idea that we can do some reforms to at least cut that shit in half is insanity, yeah. is insanity. And I'm not, I'm not even talking about what other sane countries would do, which is like, let's try to eliminate all the gun deaths. I'm not even talking about that, right? And it's just, you know, we watch this, and it's just like, uh, Just another day in another America. Another day, another day in America. And, uh, you know, we almost didn't cover this for our intro. Because we're just like every other American, right? And we're like, oh, yeah, that happened again, right? I didn't cover the one that happened at the uh, church in Texas. Me either. That's my point, and, right? Um, I was reading that apparently the family is saying that mental health was a major factor there, and they were extremely frustrated that because the the person who did the shooting had just purchased this gun in spite of like significant mental health issues. So, to your point about red flag laws, I mean, it's just so sad to have an attitude of well, nothing we can do now. Do I think you can a hundred percent get rid of all guns? No, you can no. if you ban guns, but nobody wants actually wants to do that. But can you do what's possible to reduce not just mass shootings, but regular shootings all across America? And by the way, suicides also and um, uh, domestic violence is one of the other. Those two are some of the largest causes of gun death in the country. So can you do something about it? Of course we could. Yeah, of we could. And just so everybody understands, we are gun owners. Right. So I'm, I'm not one of the people who's like just 
ban them all because, you know, you got to get that number to zero by any means necessary. But my point is, if you look at the status quo and you think it's all we can do, and this is what it is, 32,000 deaths, that's absurd, man. That's absurd. And how many innocent people have to die because you prefer the wild, wild west of your imagination to be the law of the land. And the final point I'll make is this, which is do not listen to the con men and the frauds and the charlatans who lie and they know it's a lie. And they say, well, did you know the looser the gun laws are, the fewer gun deaths there are. So in other words, it's safer to have as fewer gun laws as possible because you want the good guys with the guns to override the bad guys with the guns. And that's why everybody's got to be armed. And if that was true, the United States would already have the lowest number of gun deaths, but they don't have it. So it's not true. It is objectively not true. It is the case that the countries like Japan and Australia that have very, very strict gun laws, they have the fewest gun deaths. Now, again, that doesn't mean I'm advocating for those exact systems, but my point is an empirical one and an objective one. If you believe fewer gun regulations means more safety, you're just fucking wrong. And I think a lot of people have been duped by that propaganda, but I think the people pushing that propaganda, the NRA types, the Colion Noir, whatever his name is, they're lying and they know they're lying. Yeah. And you need to know that. Okay. That's all I got. All right. Let's go ahead and get to our friend Ryan Grimm um, of The Intercept, who's been doing phenomenal work, not only on Pakistan, but also pressing a bunch of these State Department ghouls with regard to Pakistan and with regard to Israel. Um, And he is going to join us now. Ryan Grimm, great to see you, sir. Great to see you. Um, uh, before we jump into Pakistan, I saw the bad news with regard to intercept, the Intercept having to do some layoffs. Just wondering if there was anything you wanted to say about that. Yeah, it's it, it's it. What makes it extra rough is I feel like at the Intercept we're like at the peak of our game when it comes to our coverage of Gaza, this the Pakistan stuff that we're gonna talk about soon. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Like we've been doing just incredible stuff. But yeah, the the background on that is about a year ago, uh, well, 10 years ago, Piero Midyar, billionaire who came from, he founded eBay, Mm -hmm. uh, founded The Intercept and was doing it as a sole billionaire funder. And in fact, I heard from uh, Glenn Greenwald later that at the time there were actually other rich people who were like, this sounds really cool because it was dedicated to like, national security coverage right. and creating a safe place where classified documents could be you know, securely accepted, secured, protected from the NSA, and that it would have an endless legal kind of defense budget mm. because defamation is the thing that stops a lot of investigative reporting too. Of course. And, and Omid Yar said, no, this is my thing. I got it. Don't worry about it. Mm. And, what's, and what's so annoying about that is that I think I think the Sandlers are the super rich people that started ProPublica. But the reason I don't even necessarily know that is when they started it, they were like, this is not going to be our thing. This is going to be ProPublica. And they immediately funded a big like philanthropy arm and brought in all their rich friends. And we're like, we're going to give it 10, 20, whatever insane amount of money that they would give it. But we want it to be self-sustaining from this big group of donors who care about investigative reporting. And so as a result, it's like one of the best funded nonprofit investigative outlets out there. Mm. We don't really have the capacity though. Okay. So like a year ago, yeah. uh, Omidyar, like all billionaires, like walked away. It's like that's that, that, and that's like the one problem with billionaire funding is that they might 
you know, want to influence your coverage. Right. That wasn't that wasn't the problem with him. Like he he never got involved. You can ask Glenn. He was like a resistance dem for a while. Now he's like funding the bulwark. Like his politics were not mine. They were not Glenn's. But he never. He didn't interfere. It never. Like I had no idea. Like if I didn't follow him on Twitter, which I didn't actually, because I didn't even want to know. Right. Like, I would I would have no idea. Like he wasn't involved. And Glenn, like he was a big Russiagate dude. Right. Glenn was like the biggest anti-Russiagate dude. Right. And it was totally fine. So that that part of it was fine. But the other real problem with billionaires funding things is they get bored and they move on. Now, to his credit, like a year ago when he left, he gave us like a tie off grant that's going to keep you going mm. you know, for several years while you work to build up to, some sustainability. To build up sustainability. And, and thank God, like when I got there in 2017, I insisted we create a, uh, a membership program. Like, in, like where even though we had this billionaire, I was like, you don't want to rely on a billionaire forever. Right. And so we have a, we have the best small donor program in, in like small nonprofit journalism by far, uh, which is what keeps us going. Like, and it's, and it's like inspirational to see how much money comes in from, from our readers to support what we're doing. And so without that, we would, we, we wouldn't exist today. Like we would have gone under already. Uh, but we're also not like a billionaire welfare case anymore. And so we, so now we had to restructure like the size down, down to what we hope is a sustainable size long-term. It was, it was either that if, if we didn't do that, uh, it was, we probably wouldn't have lasted like another six months or something like that. So, so this hopefully will make it so that we can, you know, sort of sustainably survive on our membership and then the, the handful of super rich like lefties mm-hmm. who are going to give small amounts, not they're not going to give billion, billions, amounts, yeah. but they can do tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands. And you, and you combine that and you can have like a robust investigative news outlet because like it's expensive to do investigative journalism and you don't pull in the kind of massive like traffic for a lot of some of the like the Pakistan stories like massive traffic in Pakistan right like millions of views right but not worth a penny because we don't take advertising so it has to be uh you know it has to be from people who are like this is good journalism and we're going to support it but that has but the size then has to equal that that kind of how does revenue fit with the broader context of obviously there's been a wave of layoffs throughout media organizations across the country. It's, it's similar in this net we're unique in the sense that uh, of our, I, I don't know other outlets that were precisely like ours, mm-hmm. where it's just one billionaire created it out of thin air, like he did with, uh, with the intercept. But in general, there's a pullback from like rich people and Facebook, Google, et cetera, are gobbling up all the advertising money. So we, we don't do advertising, but if we did, we'd be getting hit. That's what Vice was getting hit with, BuzzFeed News getting hammered on that. So there, there, there really isn't a business model where you can sell it, sell journalism, because the middleman, Facebook, Google, et cetera, take all the money. Right. But there, but there, is, there is a model where you do reporting that people like and they support it. Which is basically breaking points too. Yeah. Because yeah, you, know, you get you get the show an hour early. You, you don't get ads. You get a little some little perks. That's nice, right? But like, it's not really worth the money. Like the money you're giving is to support the project. Yeah. Like but if I, you really didn't want to spend the money, you could wait an hour. I do think the most difficult 
type of journalism to fund and have a business model really work is the deep investigative reporting in part because of those defamation challenges and just the length of time it can take. And you can be following a lead and then it falls apart and then you've spent all these resources and it ends up being for nothing. But of course, you don't want to stretch something to make a story out of it if there isn't there there. So I do think that is one of the most challenging, if not the most challenging space. Right. Because you can't pump out 10, 20, 30 pieces a day. Right. You can't like, just, you what, know, and also who wants, cough up like, a hot take. Right. <laughs> like we do with our monologues. It's not quite the same, that. you know. I, but I love doing that too. That's that's the that's the way you transform the investigative journalism into stuff that is gonna actually then affect the world Have because impact. it gets it gets to people. So yeah. everything has its role. Well, I'm very sorry. I know you don't make these, you know, aren't none of this is easy. Um, And these decisions are not made lightly. And I hope that that everybody who is affected by this and all the other media layoffs are able to land on their feet. But, you know, to make the transition to your point, The Intercept has, and you personally have been doing um, really essential work. I know our audience at Breaking Points and Counterpoints have, and a much wider audience than that as well, have really appreciated the way you've pressed officials in the State Department briefings. Um, But this story with regard to Pakistan, if people don't understand the, the scoop that Ryan and Maz were able to get their hands on really sort of turned Pakistani politics upside down. So I wanted you to just start at the beginning because this is such an extraordinary story, but also one that many Americans may be totally unfamiliar with. Just give us the basics of the characters that are involved here and what ended up being, you know, an extraordinary in front of our eyes election rigging plot. Who is Imran Khan? How did yeah. he end up in prison? What are the origins of what we're watching unfold right now? Yeah, and and I don't blame people. I was kind of not terribly well informed on it either. It wasn't, you know, Pakistan wasn't my beat until uh, until it was. Uh, so to back up, yeah, Imran Khan is a fascinating and unique figure. Like this guy was, he, he's like an uh, Otani-like uh, star in cricket over hmm. in, in Pakistan in a sense. And, I, and I, I don't understand cricket at all, other than I see people <laughs> throw the ball, which is called bowling, I've since learned. Okay. And then you hit it, which I think is called batting it or hitting it or whatever it is. And what was unique about him, not only was he the best player in Pakistan history, uh, he did both. Like Otani, he both hits and pitches. Oh, okay. Imran Khan did both. And he, and he led Pakistan to, I think, the 1992 World Cup. Okay. Where and he and he was constantly just crushing New Zealand, Australia, the UK, like India. Like it gave it gave Pakistan has not been dealt a great uh, hand of cards over the last like seventy years, and so to have their cricket team going out and stomping these you know former colonial powers or India or others uh, was just a source of extraordinary national pride. Uh, he's also like totally handsome and suave and charming and I was reading like, his Wikipedia it was like you know the Playboy total Playboy vibe. in London yeah. yeah they were talking about the anonymous blondes that he'd be with or whatever and, yeah. and Pakistan has this post-cultural pathology sort of that um, where they still are desperately uh, interested in what the West thinks of them mm. that which has actually given our reporting at the intercept an enormous amount of power mm. because when we report something that then the public over there is like look Look, you corrupt generals. The West is the West sees They're what you're watching. doing. They're yeah. watching you. They're you're an embarrassment to us. You should be ashamed. Look at the way you're getting called out here, uh, and and the fact that he was this like celebrity, 
Playboy in London was actually like, they loved that. They're like, that's, that's our man. He's out there winning, posting W's all over London <laughs> and, and all over New York City. Like, that's amazing. Then he becomes, after he retires from cricket, becomes a philanthropist. He's you know, building you know, schools and hospitals. And so just a beloved figure. Then he gets into politics as basically a populist. And I've heard him described as a Trump populist. Mm. And, and I've also heard him described as like a left-wing populist. Okay. The you know, Pakistani politics are much different than ours in the sense that 40% of the population is illiterate. Mm. Like the people, there's desperate poverty that, that makes the poverty that we have here, you know, pale and pale in, in comparison. So the kinds of things that people are fighting for and what you're able to fight for in Pakistan are just different than what you're fighting for here. And I also think he kind of moved from something of a right-wing populist to something of a left-wing populist while in office. Mm. But so in 2018, he runs for prime minister. And at the time, his critics would say he had the support of the military. His supporters would at least acknowledge that he did not have opposition from the military and that the military was okay with him. And how did the U.S. feel about him at that time? Uh, because the military was okay with him, we were okay with him. Gotcha. Because like, those are our partners in Pakistan the military and the ISI that we call that you're not even, you're basically not allowed to say that out loud in Pakistan. So the word for that is the establishment. Mm. So they call So here we, the establishment is like, you know, Chuck the Schumer, DNC and, <laughs> the yeah. DNC there. The establishment is basically the military and the ISI, the, which is the intelligence security apparatus. Yeah. They were fine with Imran Khan. But then as he's in, in office, they realize that they have a slight problem in that he has his own social base. Like he has a base of power mm. because people- They can't control him. Before it was the Butos, the Zardaris, the Sharifs, like these these three th three intermarrying families that would form a sort of two-party system that would just exchange power, but the military and ISI really had the power. And if they didn't, and, and if somebody fell out with them, they would just uh, get rid of them. They hung, hanged uh, Benazir Bhutto's dad. Uh, they assassinated Benazir Bhutto. Uh, others, Nawaz Sharif, who is their, now their, their current guy, he's been prime minister like three times. They kicked him out the last time and uh, threw him in prison. And then he fled to uh, exile in London. And then the military brought him back from exile like, hmm. in a deal. Like they so they keep the quote unquote civilians basically under their control. Mm. And they can do that because the civilians don't have any base of power. The Pakistani people look at these three families or however, if one family practically, and they're like, these are all corrupt. Like, it, and so then if the military ousts one of them, people are like, good, get rid of that. That guy was a bum. And they bring in a new bum. Imran Khan was different because he could go directly to people and he had real support. So uh, by 2020, 2021, he starts uh, going crosswise with the United States. He tells them he doesn't want to cooperate uh, with, the, with the drone war anymore. Mm. And, he, and wow. he used a phrase like, absolutely not in an interview with Jonathan Swan, uh, Axios reporter, when asked if uh, after the Taliban took over, the uh, U.S. could still use Western Pakistan, mm -hmm. Northwest Pakistan to launch drone strikes. Absolutely not. Wow. Which some people have since said absolutely not is a very common Pakistani phrase. It doesn't actually mean absolutely okay. not, like the way we understand it here. Uh, it's, it, it's a, but, but it, was, it was not a yes. Right. Uh, at, at, and he was, he said nice things about. And to say that to a Western reporter too. Right. It's also extraordinary. And he wanted relations with the Taliban. So I later interviewed him for, for counterpoints. And I asked him about 
his relationship with the Taliban. And he said, look, the U.S. completely misunderstood. And we do this a lot. We, we, we either misunderstand something or we pretend to misunderstand something. Yeah. He was like, look, Taliban won. Like, it is in our interests to have a stable neighbor in Afghanistan. So the Taliban's the government. So I'm going to work with the new government. Yeah. Like, that's, that does not mean that I like the Taliban. Right. It doesn't mean I hate the United States. He had such a Western sensibility. He was always willing to work with the United States. But the United States took a couple of those things that he did as indicating real hostility okay. uh, to him. Also, but, but he, had to, he had pretty good relations with Trump which gets us to Biden. So there's a lot of suspicion that the, the Biden camp and the Democrats didn't like kind of how close he, how close he was working with some in the, in the Trump administration. So now for these poor countries in the global South, you have a whole nother layer of complexity that you have to factor in with your relationship with the United States and not getting cooed. That's a great like you point. You got to be close to the American government, but not too close because right. if a new government comes in, they think that you're... And, That's a and, great point. And in the interview he did with me, he's like, I, I had a great relationship with Trump. I don't understand what happened with Biden. Because he's thinking you know, from just a pragmatic perspective, right. like if you're in power, you got to get along yeah, with the big superpower. And the guy that happens to be in charge there is Donald Trump yeah. right now. So what else am I going to do? And then speaking of the getting along with the big superpowers, that gets us to the reason he was ultimately ousted. So for years, they'd been he'd been working on creating... Uh, multi a bilateral meeting with Vladimir Putin. Okay. Russia, as you can imagine, rather important to Pakistan when it comes to wheat, oil, regional power, etc. So they finally get this meeting on the books. It's for February 2022. Oh boy. Some pretty bad timing for Imran Khan in this sense. He, as he's basically in the air and landing, uh, Putin launches his invasion. invasion. Wow. So now he's being pressured uh, to to like cancel the meeting, like go back to Pakistan. And he's like, he's there and he's, he's like, look, I'm, I'm here. Like we are, I can't, this, it's been years that we've been setting up this meeting. And he, and he says, you know, I'm not supporting the invasion of Ukraine. I'm not opposing the invasion. This is not, this is not our issue. We're here to talk about wheat and oil and you know, bilateral Pakistan, Russia relations. And so he goes through with the meeting and he, and he notes that lots of other people were meeting with Putin at the time. He's not, Russia doesn't stop existing because they invaded Ukraine. He comes back to Pakistan and now it, now it gets even more interesting. So uh, this guy, Don Liu, who is the assistant secretary of state that covers Pakistan and other countries. Okay. He goes before the Senate foreign relations for his standard testimony. Okay. Chris Van Hollen, who was born in Karachi. Uh, who's both of his parents uh, worked in Pakistan, either for the CIA or State Department. Okay, uh, He's very well respected in Foggy Bottom in the State Department, mm -hmm. and especially on Pakistan, like the guy literally born in Pakistan. So like if you're a Democrat or even a Republican, because a lot of this is bipartisan uh, in the Senate, you're taking your cues from Chris Van Hollen on, on Pakistan. And if you're a diplomat, you want to be on the good side of Chris Van Hollen. Uh, Imran Khan had... Been, been pursuing this policy of neutrality, you know, in the days after the invasion. And Van Hollen just reams Don Liu out in this hearing. Mm. And not for what Imran Khan had said, but what have you done? Like, who have you spoken to in the Pakistan government? Like, it's not Imran Khan's fault if he's saying something that we're upset about, if we haven't let him know directly that this would make us upset. 
You got to you got to do your job of diplomacy. What's wrong? You know, do do your do your job. You got right. one job. You got to tell him yeah. what we've got issues with. Yeah, and then if he doesn't do it, then then we still have an issue, and we'll and we'll sort that out the way that the U.S. sorts things out. So he then a few days later goes and meets with the um, uh, Pakistan ambassador who's having a lunch. It's a it's a luncheon meeting. His, his la- he's leaving his uh, job as ambassador, and Don Liu takes out everything that Van Hollen had put on him and takes it out on the Pakistan ambassador. Okay. Which the way I thought about it, and, and this I think is like an apt way of thinking about how Pakistan is understood by the U.S. You know, you, like a guy is like, has a terrible day at work. His boss like chews him out. He comes home, like rolls the newspaper up and just goes after the dog. Mm. And Pakistan in this case was was the dog. Wow. That Don Liu was just hitting with his newspaper on the way home. And he's, and so- in this meeting, which became uh, infamous slash famous slash much debated about whether it ever actually happened. So Don Liu tells him, look, uh, we believe that this uh, policy of quote unquote, aggressive neutrality, that's what he <laughs> called it. Which oh my is, God. We're, always coining such, we're always coining such great so phrases. So Orwellian. This aggressive neutrality, we believe this is the policy of Imran Khan alone. That is not the policy of Pakistan itself. In other words, the military is with us. Everybody's with us. It's just this guy, Imran this Khan. one guy. So then he says to him, if a no confidence vote in the parliament on Imran Khan would succeed, then all will be forgiven. Mm. If not, and that's his phrase, all will be forgiven. If not, it's going to be rough going ahead. He's like, I can't speak for Europe, but I think that Europe two would isolate Pakistan if this, if this no confidence vote fails. So the next day, this, the, the opposition party moves forward with this no, with a, with scheduling a no confidence vote in the parliament. And then through coercion, bribery, abuse, a bunch of several members of his party, because he had a slim majority, switch and become members of the opposition. Mm. And with the military's support, he has ousted like two months later in a, in a vote of no confidence. And so the, he talked publicly about this because so this, so this meeting was memorialized in a, what they call a cipher. We would call it a cable that was sent back to Islamabad. I've since learned he didn't see it for several days after that because when it's sent back to Islamabad, the first people that see it are the military and the ISI. They circulate this. Wow. So this is a flashing green light from the United States. You, we, know you're, we know you're unhappy with Imran Khan. It's time to, you can move on him. So let me pause, because this was an <laughs> incredibly important piece of reporting. How were you able to get your hands on it? And what was the US State Department reaction to the revelations here? So, yeah, exactly. So for the next year and a half or so, uh, there's this giant national debate in Pakistan. Did this meeting happen? What did this... What did Don Liu say? Uh, does this cable exist? Because now Imran Khan's out of office, doesn't have, doesn't have the cable anymore. Uh, he tried to show it to some journalists in Pakistan um, before he left office, but he was blocked from, blocked from doing so. Uh, one journalist uh, who was pursuing the story, uh, Arshad Sharif, uh, he fled from Pakistan to the UAE then fled under pressure from the UAE to Kenya mm. and in Kenya was assassinated by Kenyan Jesus. Uh, security forces and wow. in, in a, in an assassination that a lot of documents that we've obtained since uh, have l- 
tons of links back to Pakistan. So this dude, it looks like, was killed for pursuing this story. Pursuing this and other, other stories around the, the military and ISI, wow. but he was on this story for sure. Uh, and so no, no media inside Pakistan could, pers- could pursue this. If, even if they could get their hands on it, uh, they wouldn't publish it. Mm-hmm. At the same time, Western news outlets that have bureaus in Pakistan, those bureau chiefs or those reporters have, they have family in Pakistan. They, sometimes they're compromised. uh, And we know that from sources, I'm not just speculating, like we've been told that some of them are. And so if you're going to leak a document, you can't leak it to the Post, the Times, the Mm. Guardian, the BBC, anybody that has reporters on the ground in Pakistan. Wow. Because it's going to get, that there, there are moles there, and it's going to, and it's going to get out, um, or, or even if it doesn't, the people that live there will be at extreme risk. So that, that basically leaves us, like around the world, if you think about it, if from a, if, uh, like if you go down the list, you could say, well, maybe ProPublica would do it. They might, but they don't really focus on uh, foreign policy. Yeah. So it's what other outlet has the capability to handle this kind of a story and these type of, you know, national security related keep the source, documents. Keep the source because wh- whatever right. source has that is going to be somebody who's at serious risk of being uncovered. So you need to be able to cover those tracks. Right. And, and, you know, and you have to be willing to do it. And you have to be able to do it in a way that will be recognized by the world. Like you right. could give it to, you could post it on Twitter or you give it to a blogger. Right. In like But how much credibility is gonna but, have, right? Right. Um, and so so we got that so we got that document, authenticated it, published it, and yeah, then then all hell breaks loose. Cause it's like, oh, these conspiracy this conspiracy theory is true. Cause so many people were in within Pakistan had come to believe that it actually was a conspiracy theory. That it was that this whole thing was just made up and that this was Imran Khan just covering for his failures and trying to, you know, pin the blame on some outside forces mm-hmm. rather than accept the responsibility. Convenient yeah. scapegoat, typical just, bad guy, course, United States of America, they Uncle want Sam. me out. Yeah. yeah, they don't, Uncle Sam doesn't care about you. Who do you think you are? So that really upended, you know, Pakistani politics because it 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 exposed his opponents as not, as both conspiring against him and also lying for a very long time about it. And pretty quickly, they moved to throw him in prison uh, as, uh, you know, as his movement was gaining, you know, incredible traction because that was unusual for them. They're like, they're not used to, it's like we get rid of somebody, they're gone until we call them back. Right. But this guy has his own basis support and especially with these revelations. So what were the charges that they used to imprison him? (laughs) They, They brought something like 150 different charges against him. Um, so far, he's been convicted, I think, on th- on three significant ones, all of which are utterly absurd. One of them is um, basically leaking the document. They don't ever <laughs> accuse him of leaking the document to us because he, he didn't. It would be absurd. He didn't have it. But they kind of made it a mishandling of classified information because oh at one point he had waved the document around in public. Uh, but it was actually probably wasn't the document. It was just a Piece of paper as a prop. prop. Oh my God. So they, so there's, so they said, and they, and it's, it's so pathetic. The charge includes basically undermining Pakistani national security by embarrassing a Pakistani ally. (laughs) How little respect you have to have for your own sovereignty that you would charge your own prime minister 
with embarrassing the United States. That sounds like a problem for the United States. That's right. not a crime for. Wow. Also, it was true. Like, like what they, what he said was true. So that was one of them. He got 10 years for that. Uh, complete, completely insane trial that where they proved nothing and total kangaroo court held, held in secret in prison. Uh, they took the prosecution team and put some of the prosecution lawyers on the defense team. It, like the whole thing, the whole thing was, uh, was totally absurd. Um, they, they also charged him with this, like in the Western press, it gets called a corruption case. Yeah. Uh, but actually it's about, um, he got, he, you know, whenever a prime minister travels somewhere, they'll get, you'll get gifts from like right. wherever you went. Right. So at one place they like, he got a watch Okay. and he's allowed to keep the watch if he pays, like if, whatever the law is, you pay 50% of the appraised value or something. So he did that. They accused him of getting the wrong appraisal. Oh my God. <laughs> like, wow. Okay. Like, this, guy's, <laughs> this guy's pretty rich too. Like. He's not trying to like steal a watch. Right. Like get, get out of here. You want the watch back? Take the watch back. <laughs> uh, that was like 17 years or something. Oh, like completely insane. Lord. Wow. Or 14. I think it was 14 years. Um, and then even more absurd than those two. And this embarrassed so many of the kind of uh, middle class Pakistani folks who, who want like to be respected around the world. Right. They accused him of having an un-Islamic marriage. What does that mean? God, if I know, it's had something to do with like the, the previous divorce and the, and the current marriage and like it's incredible drama. Uh, and he gave him seven years and annulled his marriage. And, oh my God. And his wife is currently in prison. And there's actually reports now that they might be slowly poisoning her to death, Holy which is a cow. thing that the establishment is known to do there to wow. like poison people who are in prison and, and Khan is still in prison. So he's at actual at risk, serious risk. So those are the three that they, that they hit him with. And so because of that, he was ruled ineligible to run um, in this last election and we can get into the election. Yeah. Run. Let's go ahead and get into the election. So while he's, so they think, okay, we've taken care yeah. of the problem. This dude who's super popular and has his own base of support, neutralize that threat. He's in prison Military should be able to control the next election results. So how does that work out for them? Yeah. And, and just in case this doesn't quite do it, uh, you know, like I said, 40 percent of the population is illiterate. So they rely on these. Sim a lot of them rely on symbols. Every party has a symbol. Uh, I guess the Democrats would be a donkey here. Uh, Republicans, an elephant. And he was a cricket bat. As, as you can imagine, he would be. The court said he, they can't use a cricket bat. Oh, my God. And forced every single PT, his party's called PTI, forced every single PTI candidate to run as an independent. So, so no party and, and no party symbol. Then people would go to file their papers. The papers wouldn't be accepted because mm. they couldn't run. They'd go to file their papers. They'd be arrested at the filing office. Wow. Uh, if they succeeded in getting their papers in, they, they would be raided back at their house. Their family would be picked up and arrested. Uh, and then new people would run on the PTI banner. There's this one incredible story where um, a, a, a woman's house is raided because her son is running for office. They, they take the son, uh, they, they take both sons actually. Uh, they assault the woman, there's a video footage of it. They assault somebody from outside her bedroom sees, like you can see him through the bedroom window, Jesus. like assaulting her in the, in the bedroom, this old lady. Uh, the son comes out after abuse and he drops out and he's not, he's like, I'm not running anymore. She says, you know what? You might've pushed my son out. I'm running. Wow. And she puts her name on the ballot and she wins. 
So the, on the day of the election, they shut the internet off after promising they wouldn't. We did a story that said like eight ways that Pakistan government is going to just trying to like undermine the election. They did like all eight of them. Uh, they shut mobile service off. They moved everybody's polling locations around. And so you couldn't even, like you had to send a text message to find out where your location was, but they shut the mobile service off. Um, I talked to one family where the husband's polling location was 40 miles this way. The wife's was like three miles that oh way and they God. live in the same house. And so, yeah, so they're like, and the media was not allowed to mention the name Imran Khan. <laughs> So you've had, you'd wow. have, you've, you've got all these viral clips where somebody's about to say Imran Khan and they say, uh, the, 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 the son of, or the, the father of so-and-so, mm. or, or sometimes the chairman of the PTI, uh, when they would show videos of him meeting with world leaders in the past, they'd, they'd have like a logo over his face. Oh my. Because <laughs> like, they're wow. under instructions from the military. Jesus. It's like absolutely intense. That was the first story we did on Pakistan. Me and Maz was reporting on this meeting in Islamabad where, uh, the military instructed in like a five minute meeting, no more mentioning of Imran Khan to all the owners of the of the media. Wow. And it was after that we started getting tips and then got the interview with Imran Khan. It's, so that's how it snowballed. It's, it's incredible to me that people had the just like physical courage to still run. Yeah. I mean, given the threats they knew they were on. I mean, they literally like their lives were on the line and they still were willing to step up and, and that, run. That, 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 that is woman, extraordinary. That woman's other son still detained as far as we know. Wow. In incredible. Um, and so, yeah, on election day, they thought we've got this. And, and frankly, I thought they'll do well because they're so popular, but nobody the can establish. overcome. Yeah. You, the, I, I thought PTI would do you well. You thought PTI would do well just because they're... Very popular. So popular. He's popular. But I didn't think they'd do as well as they did. And so, and neither did the military establishment either. And so what, what ended up happening at every polling location, they have the thing called a Form 45, where after the voting is closed, the polling staff says, all right, there were 700 votes for this guy, 500 for this lady, and 200 for this dude. And they stamp it. And everybody who ran, or all the party workers get a copy of that. So they were able to walk away with these stamped official polling results at thousands, at basically every polling location around the country. So, they, so the polls close and then the, the news networks and, and the PTI kind of both start independently adding all of these up. Mm. And they're like, oh, in this constituency, we added all of the Form 45s this woman won by 50,000 votes. And so the news broadcast would say, bing, there's another one for PTI. And so by like midnight, they had like 137 to 140, which is a majority. Wow. And like, and everybody's shocked. They're like, how is this possible? When I saw on your Twitter, like the level of turnout that just, was insane. Just yes. bodies, pe people packed Pack into each other. And, um, you know, all of the schemes of them shutting down the internet service and the cell and how they were trying to, the people who were trying to vote were trying to circumvent that. I mean, it was an absolutely extraordinary display of defiance. Yeah, people pushed through. And it shows the tight kind of communal and social bonds because I think if one person could figure out where the polling location was, we're so atomized here. That, yeah. that we'd have a hard time letting letting the whole community know. 
but there's enough of an actual social social network, like an mm, organic like an one among human beings. Social fabric <laughs> there. Actual social fabric that word would then quickly spread and be like the polling locations over here. And every, and there was also, word also went out, do not leave the polling location without the form 45 because mm. nobody trusted them to respect the results. So then at midnight with them winning 137 plus seats, uh, the, the website for the commission election commission goes down and the TV networks are ordered, stop reporting results. But by now, I'm sure that's all on the up and up. Yeah, that's, that's, this is all fine. <laughs> they said uh, there was some technical difficulties. They're going to sort this right. Understandable. Out. Don't worry about this. But by now, the the press, which has been suppressed for so long, is like kind of had it, and you start to have outbursts from broadcasters saying that this is outrageous. Like the people have spoken here. Like this, we we watched this happen because you've now put them in a very difficult situation. Like imagine we're on air for like eight hours doing, you know, election right. results, announcing all of these victories. And then, and then we're expected to come back and be like, actually, we're wrong. Those all went to Nawaz Sharif uh, and the military who nobody likes. Mm. Like the, A lot of people had the courage to say, no, we're not going to, we're not going to do that. So then when they finally turn the lights back on, they flipped a whole bunch of numbers. Like some, they just flipped rudely, like. If it was a 120 to 70 PTI victory, they switch it. Wow. It's a 120 to 70 loss. Some, like, there were 99% counted and they had 130,000 votes. By the time they count 100,000, this person's vote total went down 50,000. Pretty sure that's not how that goes. Math doesn't go (laughs) in that direction. (laughs) You don't count more votes and then lose votes. Yeah. To their great credit, there have been some candidates who have been declared winners after who know they lost, yeah, who have publicly refused. Wow, they that's said, extraordinary. I didn't win. Like my opponent won. She needs to sit. And a bunch of them are women. <clears throat> like usually in the past, when there were, there would be seats set aside for women in in the assembly uh, that that a party can say, all right, these we have these ten seats and we're going to fill them with women because they had some minimums you're, you're supposed to meet. In this case, women were just straight up running competitively and and winning a lot of races on the, on the PTI ticket. In fact, one of the coolest ones, not, not just the woman who, who we mentioned, she yeah. had her race stolen. She won by 50,000 votes and, wow. and then the court threw out her challenge. We'll see, we'll see where it goes. A woman ran against Nawaz Sharif and it's a system where you have to win, you have to be in parliament to then, or in the national assembly to be a prime minister. Like unlike the speaker of the house that can you know come from be anywhere. Anyway. Yeah. And so that's one reason Imran Khan, you know, can't be prime minister, no matter what, because he wasn't allowed to run. Nawaz Sharif himself, who's the guy that they brought back from London to run as the military's candidate, lost to a woman by like 50,000 votes. <laughs> but then they turned the lights off and flicked it back on. And he's like a big winner. Oh my God. But everyone has, everyone saw it happen. So it's this like mind bending psychedelic moment for the Pakistani public because they're like, we all saw that he lost. Yeah, like you we we us. know what you did. <laughs> we know, we know. It was right there. We all saw it happen. And they love that the world watched it happen too. Uh, the, the, and like the, our stuff on CounterPoints like just gets shared massively. Yeah. Uh, the stuff BBC has done, stuff Al Jazeera has done, um, the stuff on, on, on Twitter. Like, and then eventually the Washington Post, New York Times had to start actually writing decent articles. Yeah. Like, 
days into this, the Times was still writing, Nawaz Sharif is the leading candidate. And it's like, I, leading in what? I know, I was amazed by that because, yes. of course, I've been following this 100% through your coverage. <laughs> and then to see the then articles. The that, real yeah, right, it's like being like, in Pakistan. What? <laughs> <laughs> like, and none of the context would be there either of the way this was getting. None of that would be there. It was just like, yeah, hey, he's a leading candidate, expected to win, et cetera, et cetera. It's crazy. It, it's wild to watch because you're like, Either Ryan's totally crazy or I'm totally crazy. You know, like, what is the New York Times saying here? Like, <laughs> there was no and, question I was going to trust you over yeah, whatever yeah, they true. were putting out. So that was never a, a question in my mind. A regular reader who's just coming into it. And the way that I was thinking about it at the time, and maybe this is what they meant, and it would be extremely damning to them if it is what they meant, is he is still expected to win could mean the fix is in. Yeah, to win. He's going to win. Unquote. He's going to win in the sense that he is actually likely to become prime minister. That they're not necessarily wrong about that. He didn't win his race and his party won something like 30 seats <laughs> out of hundreds. He's still the leading but, candidate to quote unquote win. Yeah, so but he might, he might, or there might be somebody else that forms the coalition, but we'll see. So you immediately, as this is all unfolding, you were at the State Department briefing. You were trying to press them on yeah. how are you going to handle this? And of course, they tried to, oh, it's a hypothetical right. and they, you know, use all their typical dodges. But what did you make? What have you made of the U.S. response? Because I know one of the points you've been making is because this rigging was so blatant mm -hmm. and so public, it's made it very difficult not only for the Pakistani military establishment, but also for the U.S. Yeah. to be able to pretend like they didn't see any of this happening. Right. When the State Department makes reference to like irregularities. You got there was like uh, the Podsafe Bros uh, covered it well. Yeah, I saw the, that. They're like they shut the internet off. I and saw Tommy Beater was yes. like it's as blatant as it could be. Yeah, and so when, when you're calling that irregularities, it's like not not sure that that's strong enough language there for you, Chief. You might have to dig a little deeper into the into the rhetorical bag there for something a little stronger. Otherwise, you look like you're endorsing this. And I think they they own an enormous amount of this because they kept saying in the run up to the election, whenever I I or others would press them on things that were already happening, like abducting the candidates, not letting candidates file for office, banning the party from running, banning the bat, like all of these things were pre-election. And they would say, we, you know, uh, uh, hope to see free and fair elections in Pakistan. I mean, it's very much yeah. like the way they justify Israeli war crimes. Like right. we, we, hope well, they wouldn't that, even we have, insist that they the Israelis even follow the... Though. Right. <laughs> and what, what is it? Frank, candidate, and sometimes difficult conversations. That's right, right. They weren't even having those. Wow. Okay. They're just like, we, we, in fact, the ambassador, uh, the U.S. ambassador met with the head of the election commission ahead of the, ahead of the election in, in, a, in a way that people were not uh, encouraged by. And, like, not a, like, frank, candid, and it's sometimes difficult conversation but, about getting it right. It was yeah. it seemed like it was more about the opposite. Like, how is this going? Because the military installed military figures on top of all of these institutions, like, heading into the heading into the election. So it was very clear, like, that they were trying to get their, their hands on it. Their mistake was not seeing the landslide. Like, they were ready to steal a, 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 a tight election if they needed right, to. Right, right. Um, or flip a few votes. But, like turning a landslide over is, is very hard. Uh, but yes, yeah, so I think they own in the run up to it. Since then, their, their rhetoric has gotten tougher because I think they, it's so humiliating. Yeah. Because, all right, the U.S. has interests in Pakistan that are, you know, countering Russia, countering China, blah, blah, blah. Like yeah. 
getting them, getting the Sharif to like normalize relations with India so India can counteract China. Like they've got all these, they, these little geopolitical interests. But it's, but are those interests, do those interests outweigh the intense amount of embarrassment that they would take for endorsing so thorough a theft of an election? That maybe. But it changes the it changes the calculation. They got to at least sound a little upset about they it gotta, at the got, very least. They got to sound a little upset about and it. And so post election day, you not only had some races that oh, were just I, outright stolen. One thing to add for yeah. context that I skipped over after they threw Imran Khan out of power, and we got documents proving this too. Uh, the uh, Pakistan immediately started making weapons for Ukraine mm. uh, that that the U.S. was paying for that the U.S. then allowed them to use that money to finance an IMF loan mm. to, keep, to keep them afloat. So that's that, that's the other politics Once involved they had it, and, and so I was like, this is just such a waste of time. And yeah, so at the State Department, there's really only, um, I don't want to encourage more reporters to come, so <laughs> don't, don't tell any reporters if you're listening to this, but there's like 30 to 50, depending on the day. Um, and he, he takes an hour and he basically gets to almost everybody. Wow. Um, every day. And so uh, that just that kind of, and I, so I think also by giving people, a lot of people might have fiery questions the first like three times, but if you give someone a question every day, by like day six, they're just asking normal questions. So he gets a lot of just normal questions. Like it's not as much adversarial, um, but that then leaves space for like a decent amount of adversarial time in there as well. I also think, the State Department has more kind of structural power over the world than the White House has over the United States. Mm. So they're, they're, so the State Department's like, yeah, what you can ask us the hardest questions you've got. We're still the biggest empire and strongest empire in world history. What are you, what are you gonna do about it? So it comes from whereas, a level whereas of Whereas with the White House, bravado. they can get thrown out of office. Yeah. Like, you know, they can, they might lose the next election. State Department's never losing. I mean, it switches parties, but it's still the American empire. It's the deep state. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things that I've noted that you and Matt Lee and others have been pressing on lately with regard to Israel is, you know, anytime you ask them about, hey, they murdered a six-year-old girl and they also murdered the medics who were sent to rescue that six-year-old girl in spite of the fact that they went through the normal deconfliction channels and Gave knew that this ambulance was there. And yeah. yeah, they had the coordinates. They knew this was moving. What are you going to do about it? And the go-to line, whether it's that atrocity or the many others that have been raised with Matt Miller and the other State Department spokespeople is always like, well, Israel's doing an investigation, so we're going to wait for the results of that. And so I've appreciated how lately you've been pressing them on like, okay, well, we never hear the results of right. those. How about these investigations that have been going ongoing now for months? Do you ever hear back on these things? Yeah, and Matt Lee's been been really good on that lately. Where, because remember they blew up uh, the the uh, Islamic University of Gaza yeah. um, with that controlled detonation. Yeah. Like, and, and Matt hit him pretty hard on that the, the day after it happened because the initial attempts to say that, you know, that we're worried about terrorists or whatever, it's like a controlled detonation means you had complete control right. operationally. And of, you just wanted you to bring put, this entire campus yeah, down. Yeah, you put the bombs inside of it and walked away and then set it off and probably and half your team did a TikTok while doing it. And, and so 
he, Matt Miller said, yes, there's, you know, we've, we've demanded an investigation into that. And so Matt brought that up again when um, he said that they demanded an investigation into Hindra Jobs killing. Did you ever hear back on the, on the, on the university that they blew up? And he said, no, we haven't heard, haven't heard back on that. All, all we can get is kind of varying levels of, of emotion. Mm-hmm. Like you can get, um, you know, we, we'd like to see that looked into or, or we condemn all things up to, uh, you know, at least there was emotion when he was talking about Henry Rajab. I don't know if you saw his response there. He's like, you know, I have a little girl who's almost six. And anybody who, I mean, you don't have to have a little girl who's almost six to have your heart ripped apart by that. Uh, but if you do, it, it, you just, you see her, you see her in, in, in her eyes. Like yeah. there's just no way you can't, or, or you hear her in her voice. Um, and the, the, you, you, you start to pick up different rhetoric around the investigations. Like this one, they want an urgent and immediate mm. investigation. Um, and they want accountability. Otherwise they say, we want this to be investigated. Like, so the, the, the which I think reflects varying degrees of emphasis they place in private channels mm. on it. But so far, none of it has produced any accountability for anything at all for, yeah. in four months. There was a Wall Street Journal report you likely saw that um, claims that the State Department is now investigating two incidents, one where it appears a 2,000-pound bomb was dropped on refugee camp, Jabalia refugee right, camp. very early on, yeah. Early on, killing uh, over 100 Palestinians, and the other, the use of white phosphorus mm-hmm. in Lebanon, which is another thing too. that happened yeah. very early on. The Washington Post actually did great reporting on uh, confirming the accounts of civilians in the area and that it was used um, outside of, you know, uh, of the laws of war. What do you think comes of that? Why do you think that they would launch those investigations? Is it just a way so that they have something to say to people like you from the podium? And yet the investigation can take months and months. And down the road, if and when we ever get any results from it, it's like um, too late to actually cause Israel to change course or cause us to change course in the way that we've been expediting weapon shipments? Well, I think you have to, you know, if, if you do some investigations, then it can give credibility to all of the rest of your claims that you're investigating. True. So in some ways it, it almost so it is kind of more impunity. And it kind of is yeah. to give them something to say to people like you, basically. If it, if it isn't, what's taking so long on all the others? But yes, I think that we are the superpower that talks about values human rights. Actually, that's not true. Like you, you listen to China at the UN talking about us. Like yeah. they're always talking in terms of our human rights abuses and we just don't hear it because we're like, oh, they're hypocrites. They don't count. Yeah. Which, which is how we sound to them, of course. obviously. Um, but we're, we're very loud about our values and our, our support for human rights and democracy. And it's similar to the case of Pakistan where the gap is just so yawning between what we say and what's happening that you got to do something or else you lose this powerful rhetoric that, that you're able to wield like a stick around the world. So they, so we have to do something like we have to do the bare minimum. And I think the longer away something happened, like the more willing we are to talk about it. Obviously by now we're completely uh, apologetic for the My Lai massacre. Yeah. Even though for 10 years, that was like a hot polit- political question even had free, what's his name? Dan Callie or whatever his name was, Lieutenant Callie. Free Lieutenant Callie bumper stickers through the 70s. Wow. Um, now it's like, no, okay, that was wrong. 
We shouldn't have done. We did that and we shouldn't have done it. Right. But that was in the past. Yeah. So that was in the past. We're different now. That, We're more evolved. Right. right. And also it was an isolated incident. There's a new actually book coming out re-examining that, how not unisolated yeah. an incident that was. But that is also the kind of thing. Okay, now we can start examining some of that stuff in the 60s or 70s. Um, you know, just just a couple of days ago, Israel sent a Palestinian prisoner, Interceptor wrote about this, into a hospital. You probably saw this on social media to instruct everyone in the hospital to leave because there's going to be an attack on the hospital. He then walks out and they shoot and kill him. Wow. Which is like comic book villain stuff. And this is stuff like this is happening like on a daily basis where it just, it just goes beyond the imagination of what you thought was even like conceivable. Yeah. Uh, So it, if you're going to investigate something, I think you got to look for the things that are the f- furthest in the past. Mm. So the, the fact that these two things happened very early right. on, um, you know, they, they kind of, they, they cool down enough that you can start to that's touch a, them here in the U.S. Point. One thing you've been saying, I think the whole time is it won't be that long before people look back and they pretend like they never supported. Mm. They're able to see the horror for what it truly is. I mean, we now have the ICJ saying, yes, plausible genocide. I mean, what is your assessment of what that, because I keep waiting, you know, I I keep waiting. The timeline is the moment it no longer makes a practical political difference Mm. in real world affairs will be the moment that it will be. When it's safe to have the opinion. When it's safe to have that opinion that will roughly coincide with documentaries. I mean, there will be a lot of documentaries, but they will, um, you, you will, you won't get the kind of, you know, it's, you may, I was going to say you won't get the full on, like, you know, hundred, hundred million people watching the same documentary and like being like, wow, we all, we were all wrong about this. This was absolutely awful what happened. Um, but you might, it just won't have the kind of establishment kind of sheen on it where, yeah. where they, where the, where the, even the establishment and all the celebrities and everybody agrees like, okay, yeah, we were wrong and this was bad. Um, that won't happen until it, it can't a political, it can't have political consequences. Um, unless, um, but you know, I think Israel is risking like extreme isolation yeah. and you've got a lot of internal critics inside Israel who are like, this, this is not, this is irrational. This is not well thought out for us. They just us. had their credit rating downgraded. Credit rating downgraded. The economy is completely collapsing. So much of their economy rested on um, low wage workers from Gaza and the West Bank. Who yeah. They've now completely blocked And foreign off. direct investment. Foreign direct investment and tourism. Yep. And, and also people who have, a lot of them have uh, EU citizenship um, because, you know, if you have citizenship in any of those EU countries then you can move anywhere in the EU. So if you're Lithuanian, you can move to Spain or Portugal. And lots of Israelis have kind of this type of dual citizenship and you're seeing hundreds of thousands of people on net leaving. And before October 7th, they were facing a this a lot of, like the, there was an article on October 6th, just about the population crisis that, uh, oh, that is, Israel is having. Um, and now, uh, you're seeing massive outflows because if you can live somewhere else where a, uh, your kids are not going to get drafted the second they turn 18 mm-hmm. and get sent into a meat grinder somewhere. Um, and B that you're not 
um, getting, you know, having missiles shot from Lebanon or from, from Gaza. Uh, or, you know, Netanyahu keeps talking about the existential threat that um, Iran's just going to nuke the whole place. Doesn't make it's you like, want to stay. Like, yeah. <laughs> really? Okay. So what's the... And now you've got hundreds of thousands of reservists called up fighting. And so that's... You, I, I hear stories from people over there of like companies that where you've got 30 employees and like 20 are gone. Right. And so the economy is just like collapsing. And if you can go somewhere else, then just as an individual, you will. In the same way that like the Palestinians want nothing more to make sure that they never lose Gaza. Right. Um, but on an individual basis, so many of them are like, get me out of here. Well, Egypt is terrified if the border is breached. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got a million point, 1.2 or 3 million people yeah. clustered right at the border. And then if Israel breaches the border, there's right. going to be massive which outflows is what, because, of course, they're, as they're starving to death and right. being bombed and seeing their, you know, children suffer to an extreme degree. Anyone, you know, would just be concerned about their basic survival. Right. And so it, for the Israelis, it's not quite on that existential level, but they, they're, they may be passionate supporters of the idea of the state of yeah. Israel. But if they can go work in Spain instead and live, take their family there and be safe. I'm like, let's do that instead. You're see, and you're seeing the numbers are huge. Like, we don't have firm numbers, but they look like, um, you know, definitely hundreds of, hun definitely hundreds of thousands, if not a million yeah. more leaving since October 7th. Um, the poll that I have found maybe most extraordinary, you know, in terms of U.S. sentiment is that you have half of Democrats who now say Israel's doing a genocide. And mm -hmm. you have 80 percent who say either yes or they might be doing a genocide. And yet you have obviously a Democratic administration that is rushing to support right. them. With in, like 10 no votes or whatever, whatever tiny. Right. And in, in the every Senate, like two or three. Possible yeah. way. And, and you also wrote about and flagged for me to Senator Van Hollen's comments in the Senate, mm -hmm. which sounded really great, where he's like, hey, their star kids are literally dying yeah. of starvation. I talked to Cindy McCain, who is the head of the World Food Program, and she's like, yes, they are starving. That is a war crime. The people are doing this are war criminals. But I'm still going to vote for the bill that ships 14 billion more dollars to them. But because it gives money to Ukraine. Do yeah. you? I mean, do you see that as any sort of a, a turning point in terms of sort of like mainstream Democratic elite sentiment? Because Van Hollen is not Bernie Sanders. Right. Like this is a very run of the mill Democratic senator. Son very of the much. CIA, yeah. That's right. Very yeah. much in the mainstream of Democratic elite sentiment um, and quite powerful, too, especially in terms of foreign policy. So do you see that as significant even as he voted still for the aid? I, I do in the in, in the long term sense. Yeah, um, th there was a uh, yes. Um, you've got these neoliberal Scoop Jackson Democrats. You know, Joe Biden said he learned from Scoop Jackson. If people want to go uh, down that guy's Wikipedia page to a, a, a wild, you know, a demo, you know, history of the Democratic Party where they, like Scoop Jackson, this right-wing Democrat was basically created the neoconservatives. Mm. Like it's, it's fascinating that they came out of the, it's not surprising though that they came out of the Democrats when you see how their Democrats are still operating. But that arc um, is is bending downward and the, and the kind of new generation of Democrats does not have the same just ideological fealty to this vision that that somebody like Biden does in some ways, ha like having this having a boomer uh, in there who's a protege of Scoop Jackson when it comes to foreign policy is is the absolute worst of all worlds for for Palestinians. 
uh, the good news, if there is any, is that they're literally dying. Like the, that generation is. Yeah. I can't. You know, maybe we, maybe uh, you got one, one more term for that generation. I, I guess they're both of them are. <laughs> Right. We almost locked into one more term from them. Yep. But that's it. And the new generation, I think, sees uh, sees the question uh, a much different, you know, not much differently, but differently. Yeah. I mean, Biden really seems like he's still locked into this like 1970s yeah. Golda Meir or whatever he, you know, his impression was at that time. And the real Cold War, just it's us versus them mentality and these guys are on our side so we got to support them number one no yeah. matter what and you even hear from kamala harris you know at least the right. leaks that that's, are coming out that's that more even, likely she's a little get. more uncomfortable yeah. with what's going on a little more sensitive to hey in that hundred day statement maybe you should yeah. at least mention the thirty thousand palestinians who have been killed at this yeah point. And, I, and i think what's what uh what some people would hope for is not that you're gonna and you're never you're never you're not gonna get a pro-palestinian president, but you want one who just looks at the issue normally. Right. Like it's a normal political and slash geopolitical issue where there are interests to weigh on each side. Yeah. And we work, uh, we work through those as the U.S. does everywhere. That's still going to put you on the bad side because that's how, that's where the U.S. is when it comes to foreign policy 99% of the time. Uh, But at least if it's not ideological, where, where it's just reflexive, unconditional support for right. one side, no matter what, then at least it's a fair debate. At least like, you got a chance. Yeah, like, all right, we're going to hear from, we're going to get, I'm going to get briefed from this perspective, I'm going to get briefed from this perspective, and then we're going to make a decision rather than the decision's made. Right. It's, it's ideological and it's baked and in. And I don't care what my base thinks. Yeah. I don't care about what the world thinks. Yeah. I don't care what the negative consequences are for our country. This is yeah. just what it is. Democracy and is on the line, but this is more important. This is more yeah. important. Um, speaking of things that are important, guys, support The Intercept. Um, they're doing incredibly important uh, work, you know, seeing you and Prem in the State Department briefings, the scoops with regard to Pakistan, and also the incredibly important coverage of uh, Israel's assault on Gaza is just, you know, there's never been a more important time to support the work you guys are doing, and we appreciate it very yeah, much. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. And to everybody who's already supporting us, thank you. Like, they should know that we would basically wouldn't exist if they weren't. So I can imagine how some people are like, wait a minute, I've been, I've been uh, responding to these emails that's saying you need money and giving five dollars a month or ten dollars yeah. a month, and you're still laying people off. It's like, well, we wouldn't exist. We'd be we'd be just completely under if people were not doing that. Yeah, and it's just the thing that, that makes it possible. Um, well, Ryan, thank you. It's great to see you. Appreciate your time today. Mm, thank you.